Um, if you've not been to a Wednesday night before or haven't been in a while, a little reminder is these are overview studies, and usually we spend two weeks in each book and just kind of get the bird's eye view so that the idea is you can go to any book and kind of know, okay, yeah, that's what's going on in that book, that's the main themes in that book, and so it's called an overview study. We've been doing it for a few years. We spent a whole lot of, we spent years in, in Genesis and years in Exodus, and then when we got to Leviticus, we sped up because no one wants to spend too much time in Leviticus. And then we kind of kept a pace of two weeks per book. And now that we're hitting the pastoral epistles, we're going to go one week per book, which means, and I know y'all are on the edge of your seat excited about this, which means that at the end of this semester, we will finish with Revelation. So you will be able to say, we went through the whole Bible at the end of this, this semester. So um, so because of that, no one can miss a week. It doesn't matter what you have going on. It, everyone has to be here every time because we're doing one, one week uh, per book. Um, but I, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into Galatians. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. Um, I love Wednesday nights. I love getting to stop down in the middle of the week and just open the Word and, and have this time. Uh, I pray that you would bless our time uh, in Galatians, and just bless our time in, in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, our hope is that we would not just grow in knowledge, which is important, but also that our, that our heart's affections would be um, tuned in and, and properly in line with, with yours. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you for this day. We pray for the kids as they're in their classes. We pray for the youth and the fifth and sixth graders as they're looking at Galatians tonight and kind of doing some icebreaker stuff and getting back into the swing of things. Lord, I pray that none of us would ever just go through the motions, and I'm thankful for the opportunity you put before us tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, Galatians. The title is Galatians Faith. So that should be, um, it's not real earth-shattering, talking about faith in the pastoral epistles, but that is, the, that is the focus tonight. What is faith? What does it look like, and how do we uh, stray from it? You know, what, what happens there? And so, Galatians is actually one of the earliest written documents in Christianity. So as we're diving back in, with you know, different document, different parts of the Bible were written at different times, all of it equally inspired and breathed out by God. Galatians is one of the earliest written documents of Christianity. Different from Romans. And I want to say that because we're right now we're in, in Romans on Sundays. And so Romans is a book that Paul is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome which he didn't have any part in planting, and he, didn't have, he, he had not been there before, and he was eager to go there um, as he passed through to go somewhere else. Galatians is different in that Paul had a very active role in planting these churches in Galatia. And um, that's, when we're talking about Galatians, we're talking about modern-day Turkey, so everyone's on, on board there. And we're going to see sort of the very personal nature of the fact that he had planted these churches and, and some very personal appeals and examples that, that, that we see in the text. So here's some questions to consider just to kind of dive in, icebreaker, getting back into it. Everyone's well-rested, I know, but we're still going to do some of these questions to wake everybody up, make sure we're all, all on board and ready. First question is, what are some of the most popular ways that the message of the gospel can be twisted, changed, or modified? Some of the most popular ways that the gospel can be twisted, changed, or modified. Challenging biblical history. Challenging biblical history. Yep. What'd you say? 
taking things out of context. Yeah. If God wants me to be happy, he said this little verse here. Yeah. Yep, contradictory statements that, mm-hmm. yep. What are some other ways to twist it? Yep, a focus on man instead of on God. And when you do that, what are some things that happen? Wrath, yeah, that happens. Spending five weeks in that, six weeks in that, for those of you who haven't been here on Sunday. It's exciting, kick off the new year. Yeah. yep. Yeah, when we're the center, it fosters entitlement because God's not at the center. Yes. Yeah, taking things literally that weren't meant to be taken literally. Can y'all think of an example of something that might be, I don't know, hyperbole? eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness. There's probably not hoping that everyone actually does that. What's some, another example of that? Yes. And so what happened when, when the eat my flesh, drink my blood thing came up early on was, oh, these are a bunch of cultish weirdos who are also cannibals. That was a lot of the uh, accusation of the early church. So um, some other ways that the gospel can be twisted, changed, or modified is Jesus plus something. Like, yes, you have to put your faith in Jesus, but you also have to be here every Wednesday night for our study. That's Jesus plus something, or, you know, probably the more popular thing in the, in the Bible is circumcision. Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus certain works. Um, we can be selective in our reading, and that can twist it, where we only take certain things into account that we like, but we dismiss the other things that we don't like. Um, one of the things we're going to talk about on Sunday is how sometimes people want to live in Romans 3 and Romans 1 at the same time because they like certain things, but you can't actually do that. You gotta, it's either all or nothing because all scriptures read that by God. So selective reading. Um, the prosperity gospel. I, I like the verses about blessing, and I don't like the verses about sacrifice, so I'm going to hold on to those. But then there's the flip side of the same coin is the people who think that anything of this world is evil and and if you have any enjoyment at all, it's probably from the devil, which is another false thing. And so there's these imbalances, these work-based things, um, sometimes behavior modification. Sometimes we can do behavior modification gospel in our homes, and we don't even realize it. We're trying to teach our children what it means to be a Christian, and <clears throat> the only way we're doing it is, don't do this, 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 and do this. But there's no talk about that, what that faith in Christ is. And so it, it's pretty easy to twist, change, and modify the gospel But as we're going to see from Paul in this letter, it's pretty terrible when it happens, even in the smallest sense. Here's a question. How can we know if the gospel message has been jeopardized? So we know it can be. How can we know if the gospel message has been jeopardized? The message doesn't line up with the gospel. I I think you answered the question with the question, but I get it. How else? What are we implying when we say the message doesn't line up with the gospel? What must be known? Okay, interpretation can be wrong. 
Yep. Opinion, yeah, yeah. Mode of mind sharing it. But in the most basic sense, most basic sense, don't overthink it. How can we know that the gospel has been jeopardized? What do, what do we have to go back to? Scripture. And if it doesn't include what? The, yes. The basic elements of You know the other two? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So those are, those are basic elements of the gospel. But the point is, is that there's a point that you can go to. You have to go to the gospel to know if the gospel's been jeopardized. So a, a bunch of people who don't actually know what the gospel is will never know if it's been jeopardized, which is why the forward movement of truth is so important and why Paul stresses over and over again in Romans and in other places that suppressing truth is really terrible. I was thinking about the, the, the old game Telephone. You remember that game? The telephone when you were little? Just show hands if you played telephone. Okay, good, because like two of y'all were like, uh-huh, and the rest of y'all were like, you're an idiot. Um, so, yeah, telephone. You know, you say something to the first person, and then, the, and then they say it one time to the next person, they say it one time to the next person, and, you know, um, whatever they end up with could be completely different or slightly different. They could lose some, some words or someone hears the wrong word, or you got that one guy in the middle who's like, I'm just going to throw a grenade on this thing and mess the whole game up. And you end up with a message that's not even close. It's, that's kind of what we're seeing in Galatians. That, that's kind of the mindset of it was told to someone and that person told someone. But somehow right now the setting in Galatians is we're over here and there's a difference that we got to figure out what, what has gone wrong here. Galatians is largely a letter urging the church to guard the truth and make sure that the gospel doesn't get twisted. It doesn't get twisted into something that it was never meant to be. So our time in this letter tonight is a time where we'll be exploring the motivation given to make sure that we get the news of the gospel right. So we're going to explore the motivation. What, what, mo what motivation do we need to make sure we get the gospel right and it doesn't get twisted? And the first thing is that the news is divine. So if you're writing notes, that would be the first thing to write. The news is divine. We join Paul in this letter mid-controversy. There's a controversy that we're kind of joining him in mid-controversy as he writes this letter. And if you look at 1, 1 through 10, it says this. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaching to you is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, what is the controversy that we're joining Paul in the middle of? What's controversy? A compromised gospel. How did it get compromised? Telephone. So what happened? Yeah. Yeah, not just somebody, but 
apparently multiple somebodies were preaching and teaching something that was not the gospel, and they had made their way into the church. So it wasn't that there was just chatter out in the community that wasn't quite gospel. It was these people who were preaching something other than the gospel, something different than what Paul originally said, have crept into the church and now have the role of teacher in the church. And so Paul's writing this letter to the church saying, that's a problem because some of y'all are abandoning the original message. That's the controversy. Why? I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So the news is divine, and under that, that heading, we see that the source is God. We just read it. In his intro, Paul makes it clear that his apostolic mission to the Gentiles was not his idea, right? Paul's saying, hopefully the roof holds tonight. It's not creepy at all. Um, so Paul says uh, the mission to the Gentiles wasn't his idea, and it wasn't really even a human idea, right? This was something from God. He says, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It wasn't a human idea called by Christ on Damascus Road. Paul is sent by God, and the source of the news that he has to bring is God. In 11 through 12, it says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to explain his background as an ultra-nationalistic Pharisee. He does this because the false teachers are insinuating that Paul is trying to gain a following by telling others what they want to hear, while they themselves are guilty of the same thing. Look at verse 13. Um, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So... What Paul is wanting them to see is, apparently, it's not just that these, these false teachers have made their way into the church, but as false teachers usually do, they begin to disparage the good teachers and the teachers who were true. And so they hadn't, they're not just sitting there teaching things that aren't true. They're saying, and that Paul, that Paul guy, um, he's just trying to gain a following. And that's why he's saying you don't need circumcision along with Jesus. And so they're accusing Paul of just trying to gain a following when, and so what Paul does is Paul says, hey, uh, it's actually like 180 degrees the other way around. If I wanted a following, I would have kept doing what I was doing as an ultra-nationalistic, pharisaical Jew. I would have kept, I was, I was moving up the ranks with the Jews. I was young and I was moving up the ranks. So if I was trying to gain a following, I'd have kept doing that. But Jesus called me to do this work. And if I'm trying, he, he says, for I would have you know, brothers, the gospel preached to me was not man's gospel. Um, and right before that, if or, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He's saying, look at the nature of the message that I'm bringing. These guys are saying I'm trying to gain a following. This isn't the kind of message that just gains a following because people are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. 
And ultimately, that's what the false teachers were trying to get away from. They didn't want to be persecuted for their faith. And so if they could say, you know what? Christianity is Jesus and circumcision, then those guys would be heralded as bringers of good news to the people who wanted that kind of a message. We're going to dig into this a little more. So the first thing is the source is God. The second thing, it's, it sounds a little wordy, but the means of distribution of this gospel is cognitive proposition. So to distribute the gospel, to give it, you use your brain, and to receive it, you use your brain. This is not some brainless activity where you check, check the brain at the door so that then you can have faith. I have an atheist friend who, when we're talking, that's, that's the thing he'll throw out. He'll say, hey, you know, it sounds like I got to check my brain at the door to, to believe what you're talking about. I'm like, no, sir, you're certainly putting your faith in something. It's just not Jesus. And so we kind of, we walk through that, but that's sort of the argument is this is a brainless thing. But here the means of, of distribution is cognitive proposition. In verses six through nine of chapter one, which we've already read, Paul tells them that they're being confused into believing a false gospel is significant. The only reason that that confusion can happen is because there was clarity with the gospel. Like when you see that gospel confusion, that means that there was clarity before the confusion came in. There could be no false gospel if there was no cognitive content to the gospel in the first place. So when you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing something that makes cognitive sense to people. And when people hear it rightly by the power of the Spirit, it's it's cohesive, it is um, definite, it's distinct, it's definable. And it has definable claims. It's not just faith in whatever. It's faith in something specific. And it requires understanding. You're not checking your brain at the door. The Galatians should define, what Paul is saying to them is, you Galatians should define anything that contradicts this content is error. I shared with you the gospel. Anything that contradicts it in the slightest way, even just adding a little or taking away, is error. And that's how you should treat it. The content should be the same. So the source is God in this divine news. The means of distribution is cognitive proposition in this divine news. And then the fact checkers, because we're talking about getting it right. So you need a fact checker to get it right. You ever watch the debates and the fact checkers are going absolutely nuts because there are no facts half the time? That The fact checkers here are Galatian Christians. That's who is checking the facts here. The gospel is not meant to be this utterly heady thing that only the elite can get. The gospel is something that the most common of Christians can understand because it is cognitively understood. It makes sense to those who, it's not only to the elite or to the theologians or to the scholars It's to the most basic of people who God calls to himself. So the fact checkers here are not, um, they're certainly not the false teachers, and it's not even the good teachers. He's saying here, the fact checkers are you Galatian Christians in the Galatian church. Dever states um, in his book, Mark Dever is is the survey that we use to put these notes together every week, and he's got so much wonderful content, you can read it, it'd be a great addition to the study. But Dever states this, he says, Paul regards the Galatian Christians as being competent to recognize and expunge the errors. He's saying, church member, you are competent to recognize, expunge, correct, and clarify 
the errors when it comes to something that's not gospel. It's not just left to the elite church members. It is, it is every single one who is a member of the church should be able to do that. He says, if the gospel is a simple cognitive message, it should be recognizable by common Christians. Therefore, Paul appeals to the Galatians to judge the message no matter who's bringing it. Judge the message no matter who is bringing it. Pastor Brad mentioned this in the Timothy study, that if you ever hear any of us preaching anything that sounds like false gospel, you don't just have the, the opportunity to come and talk to us about that. You have the responsibility to come talk to us if you hear something that you believe to be false gospel. And guess how we're going to figure out if it's true or false? We go back to the source because the source is true and it's clear. And it is cognitively known by the common anybody. Yeah. 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 So in this, so that's a that's a really good question because ours is different. We have much more to draw from. In their circumstance, Paul has been there and Paul has planted the church. So the message of the gospel, as as entrusted to Paul by God in Christ on Damascus Road, is what they have, and so he is so sure of it. That the things that we can say, okay, we're going to go back to the Bible and look at this. He's saying, listen to what I said. The thing I said, if it varies at all, it's so certain and it's so true. If it's different from what I said, you cannot believe it. So for, for sure we see God's hand at work here because it's kind of hard to even imagine that happening in any setting. Where one guy says something that is so profoundly true that the truth penetrates and it cuts the way that it was designed to. So yeah, the setting here is one of the earliest Christian you know, documents is Paul went there, Paul planted it, and what Paul said is gospel truth. So really good question. Does that answer that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's not doing it lightly. I mean, he's 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 exasperated, just like you know. And we're going to get into that in a second. Would you? Yeah. Yes. To these people, yeah. Talk about having an important message to bring in an important job, you know, to fulfill with that message. Absolutely. The, um, the fact checkers are, are these Galatian Christians, and so if you hear anyone practicing a false gospel or preaching a false gospel, you don't just have the right to talk about it, you have a responsibility as a Christian to, to address that. So this first part is that the news is divine. The second point is that the news is justification through faith in Christ. So as we kind of nail down what the, what the news is, we can tell in retrospect, to, to kind of speak to both those point, that point and that question that Brent brought up, we can tell in retrospect what the message was that he shared because we can be certain that Paul isn't going to change it up this time. Paul's going to be, he, this, this, this whole letter to the Galatians is uber specific because he's trying to get back to what he originally told them that they strayed from. So the message, the news, is justification through faith in Christ. This means that justification is not by the law, which was the point of the false teachers that they were trying to make. 
that's the message pushed by the false teachers that had made its way into the church. The content, as we're looking at faith in Christ, first the content of the message is death in Christ. We see that in the opening line. In verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. Amen. The content of the message as he's telling them faith in Christ alone is it. Is first on the death of Christ. What's interesting here is that when you take the, the letter in full scope, it doesn't appear that these false teachers were necessarily rejecting this. The false teachers weren't rejecting. So you would think a rejection of the gospel is a rejection of um, the fact that you know some guy died for your sin and, and somehow came back to life. I mean, that seems like the most obvious rejection. These false teachers, they weren't rejecting the death of Christ and what happens to believers in the death of Christ. They were just adding a little something to it. And that's a big problem. That little something is a big problem. It doesn't appear throughout the whole letter that the false teachers were necessarily rejecting the message of the death of Christ. They were simply not treating it as sufficient. They weren't treating that as a sufficient means by which someone could be cleared of their guilt. There had to, okay, that's good. I'm glad he did that for us. But guys, we've had the law for how many years now? We can't just, we can't just say that, that, that it doesn't matter necessarily. And so they had a different message. But we have to guard the message that Christ's death was sufficient. So the content of the message is the death of Christ. And the content of the message is faith in Christ. So there's the death of Christ and then there's faith in Christ. One way to consider the question facing the Galatians is to think of it this way. This would be like the kind of question that the, the Galatian in that context would have to answer. As they're hearing the false teachers, the question would be, do I have to become a Jew first to become a Christian? That would be the question. So if you're trying to kind of put yourself in their shoes as they're hearing truth from Paul and then Paul leaves for a little bit and then they have false teachers who are like, yeah, that's a great message, but we're still going to have to have circumcision and some law. You have to think, if you're going to climb into their shoes and think their thoughts in the situation, you would have had to say, okay, I'm hearing these false teachers and there's a message that's spreading that Paul's addressing. So the question would be, do, do I have to become a Jew first to become a Christian? Like, do I have requirements, the circumcision requirement of a Jew, so that I can become a Christian? This is what Paul addresses in the, the large middle section of the letter. And I'm going to read a chunk of it because on these shorter epistles, we have the opportunity to actually just read the text and not be in as big of a rush. So I'm going to read a chunk of this starting in 2.15. Yes, sir. Some are misguided. The tone of this letter would say that these false teachers were a step beyond misguided. They were certainly misguided, but they were also disparaging Paul and putting a yoke on the Christ, these young Christians' necks that was a millstone. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't good for them at all. So they were misguided, but they weren't making a mistake. And that's why Paul is so emphatic about why are you straying? You know, how could you let these guys, of all people, lead you astray? So they, there could be misguided. They were certainly misguided, but there was, a, there, was a, uh, there was an intentionality to it because we know that Paul is speaking to um, how they were trying to gain a following while accusing him of the same thing. And what we're going to see in a few minutes is that the real reason that they wanted them to be, there were two reasons that they wanted them to be um, circumcised. One was so that they wouldn't be persecuted. 
by straying by their fellow Jews who were still clinging to the law. And then two was that they, um, one was that they wouldn't be persecuted. And the two was that they would look good for, for sort of rallying the, rallying the church to be a little more Jewish. So it was a good, that's a good question. Yeah, it w- I mean, imagine, you know, in this setting, if you were wondering what it meant to be a Christian, and you had to, like, somehow become something before that. Like, it's a major hurdle. Like, it might seem small to the Jew who's talking about it, but to the person who's never been a Jew, circumcision? Really? I mean, that was part of the problem in the church in Rome. Because in the church in Rome, you had, under the leadership of Claudius in, in the Roman in, in Empire, that... The Jews were there, they, they, they settled the church, and there were Gentiles who became a part of it, and then he sent out all the Jewish Christians, because a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, so I don't care if you're a, a, a Jew or a Jewish Christian, you're gone. The Gentiles began to flourish, then the Jews came back, and so the same things that this church is kind of struggling with, the same thing that the church in Rome struggled with, was that it, there were just Gentile Christians who didn't have a real Jewish influence. The Jewish influence of the church had gone down, and when that happens, the Jews were not happy about it. It meant persecution for the Jews. It meant life change for the Jews. It meant adjustments for the Jews, and it meant ridicule for the Jews. And so the same thing that happened in Rome where those Jews come back, and it's like, okay, how do we do life together since we're all sitting at the same table with Christ? That's some of what's going on here. So the content is death of Christ. The content of the message is also faith in Christ. So 2.15, I want to read aloud through 3.14. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I mean, if you're a Gentile, it probably feel a little bit weird to hear that, right? We're not Gentile sinners because the sinners had no choice, but the Gentiles had no choice but to be sinners because they didn't have the law, right? Paul's making this appeal as a guy who was a Jew. We ourselves are Jews by birth, ethnic Jews, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's a quick question for all Christians in the room. Why is no one justified by the works of the law? Because we're not good enough. You can't do it. You are either... 100% justified by the works of the law because you 100% adhered to the law or you are 100% condemned and cursed by the law because you screwed up somewhere. You can't keep it in in, in its entirety. So that's what Paul's saying here is by works of the law, no one will be justified because no one can do it perfectly. If you can do it perfectly, you can be justified by the law. Paul's saying it's impossible. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. He's saying it, it's a, not a big if, it's a guaranteed if, because that's what happens with everybody in the law. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Why is it so evil that these false teachers are saying gospel plus something, Jesus plus something? Because if it's anything, then Christ's death was less than sufficient for your justification and righteousness, and Christ's death at that point has no purpose, because we need complete justification, complete righteousness. And then he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now remember how early on this was, right? This letter was very early on, so there were some there who actually may have seen Jesus hanging on the cross, and may have actually seen the empty tomb, and may have actually heard the reports of people who actually saw him. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's like, did you just need the Spirit at the beginning and now you're going to do some law stuff and some behavioral modifications to to be perfected? That's not how it works. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's making the point, Abraham wasn't, his righteousness wasn't from the law. It wasn't from doing the right thing at the right time. It was by the fact that he had faith and believed God. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's saying, you Jews are thinking in terms of Abraham is the man of the law, and you have to be attached to the law to have the blessing of Abraham. And so he's saying, make it clear, Abraham is a man of faith. So those who have faith are attached to Abraham and have the promises and the covenant and the fulfillment of the blessings that God said he would give to the offspring of Abraham. It's the difference that Romans talks about is the difference between the children of the flesh versus the children of of the promise. The Jews who promote the law still are moving as children of the flesh, not as children of the promise. And Paul's trying to make this clear. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's the point we were talking about earlier. If you abide by the law and you don't abide by every part of it, all of it, cursed are you. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You can see Paul, why he's so upset about what they've done, because those who are under the law are cursed, but the ones under the law are trying to push the gospel plus something, 
Jesus became a curse so that his children wouldn't be cursed. And these Judaizers, these, these false teachers, are saying, as cursed people, be cursed with us. And Paul sees the sacrifice of Christ on the cross who became a curse. So it's almost, it'd almost be like, just re- like the dog returns to his vomit is what I'm thinking about. Where Paul's like, why are you doing that? Why, why would you allow such a thing? Christ became your cursed, and cursed people are trying to make you cursed with them, and you can't appreciate the cursed nature of Christ on the cross enough to continue in the gospel, and you're already straying. That's why Paul is so emphatic about, what are you doing, oh foolish Galatians? Paul is explaining that faith is not a new way to get to God, but the way that it's always been. In 324, he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So what he is saying here is that the law served its purpose by leading the ones who were given the law, the Jews, to Christ so that they might be justified by faith. Does that make sense? He's, he's wanting to make it clear that this wasn't an afterthought. This gospel message of faith in Christ wasn't like an afterthought because the law didn't work. Sometimes, I don't know, I kind of grew up with teachings of the Old Testament where it was like, there, was, there could almost, depending on which Sunday school class I was in, there could almost be a tone of, God tried this first. God tried the law. It didn't work. So then God had to come up with a plan. And Jesus had to come and do what the law couldn't do. And there could be that tone that I want to make sure we, we steer way clear of tonight. Because this is saying that from the beginning, it was always by faith. The reason the Jews had the law was so that the law could be almost like a babysitter and a tutor to get them to that point where then there could be faith in Christ. Because Abraham's righteousness was not counted to him because he adhered to the law perfectly, but because of his faith in the promises of God. That's what that faith is. The promises of God that we know are fully and completely fulfilled in Christ. And so this is a very personal message, but as you can hear in the teaching tonight, it's a very detailed message. He's getting into the specifics, the nitty-gritty, the mechanics, the nuts and bolts of why it's so bad that you would submit to a yoke of slavery again in such a manner and in his mind in such a short um, span of time. So what are some ways, as we've th- we kind of started with the basic question, and I want to get down into it right now, what are some ways that we overtly or subtly place requirements on ourselves or others that might muddy the message of the gospel? What are some ways that we might overtly or subtly place requirements on ourselves or others that muddy the message of the gospel? What are some examples? expect yeah 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 the reason that I'll just leave yeah that's a good point I'm not going to say that Yeah. Yep. Obligation versus what? 
worship. How else might we subtly or overtly add requirements on ourselves and others? Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, I'll say what I was going to say earlier because not three, three people have brought it up. Some, sometimes, you know, um, Republican conservative Christians are sometimes labeled as judgmental because Republican conservative Christians are sometimes judgmental. Like, that's why that happens. So it's something that, like, there's a lot of people in our community, and we're not pushing a political agenda here or anything like that. Nonprofits aren't allowed to do that, but actually we can, but you're not allowed to push a, a person, so that's, that's the law. If you, if you want to stick to the letter of the law, we can do it. Um, uh, but, but there, you know, it's so easy. Like, some people are called bigoted in a really unfair way, but some people are called bigoted in a really fair way. And you have to make sure you're walking rightly according to the gospel to make sure which side of the, the line you're on on that. Because when you start having, putting a yoke and a requirement on someone who doesn't even know Jesus and you judge them as if they're complete morons and you are here and they are here, I don't think that's the way that Paul or any of the others would say, yeah, that's how we'll win them to Christ. That's how they'll see the gospel more clearly when you're arrogant. That's not the way to do it. And so, yes, that muddies the gospel a lot. You know, Dever has a deal in, in a kind of a line of questioning in here, and he says, you know, trying to get to the heart of how we, how we could muddy the gospel, he says this, what makes you feel good about yourself? When you understand that, you get a little bit closer to what requirements you might put on someone else. It doesn't have to be circumcision. It could be, I'm of a particular... Uh, I'm just this way, and when you're not this way, I don't even like being around you. It could be more subtle. It could be tone issues. It could be so many small things that, you know what, when I am in blank or in a particular way, that makes me feel good about myself. So if someone else isn't like that, it makes me maybe not feel good about them. A requirement above. He says, what makes you feel good about yourself? Is it a productive day? Is it someone's approval? Is it consistent quiet times? Is it handling your words at a particular way at a particular time? If you find the answer to what makes you feel good about yourself, you will come close to finding what causes you to sometimes confuse the gospel. It's a really, really wise way to approach that. So let's do it. So when you consider what makes you feel good about yourself and you consider what yoke you might be putting on someone's neck unnecessarily, what are some ways in which we might muddy the gospel? Yep. Yep. Placing our good works above faith. Yep. 
You know what, Patrick, you can get out of here. You can, <laughs> you can. Yeah, it can be any number of things. Uh, foster care, orphan care, widow care, school choices. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes it doesn't matter what they're doing. It just matters how they feel about what you're doing. Yeah. People pleasing. I'm familiar with it. Any other examples that come to mind? What makes you feel good about yourself that you can just put on someone else to muddy the message of the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Why are you so calm? Why aren't you angry? Yeah, we all just finished the Christmas holiday. We know how that goes, right? We all just sit around the dinner table with people we see twice a year during an election year. Yeah, yeah. It can be anything. It, it really, I, I, that, that's, what, that's the point of what's being said here. You, one, you should give more to Rafa, and two... You, you're still a Christian if you decide not to. That's the message of Galatians. Um, uh, so the news is, is, uh, is divine. The news is the faith in Christ alone. The news is vital. Paul's warning to the Galatians is not light. We have to see this. He expresses horror and astonishment at the thought that they're deserting this message. In 4.8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and he goes even as far as to say, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I mean, if someone invested in your life and then they saw how you were living, and then they came back to visit and they're like, man, I wish I wouldn't have been your youth minister. Like, that's kind of what's being said. You're sort of like, man, all those Wednesday nights, nothing to show for it. That's kind of the attitude that we hear from Paul. The reason is because the news is that vital. Paul is concerned that they are voluntarily submitting to the very slavery that they have been freed from. And then finally, the news changes us. The divine and vital news of justification through faith in Christ has practical implications for our individual lives and for our lives together. So it changes first our relationship with our teachers. So I'm going to share this, and it's going to sound maybe a little bit self-promoting and self-aggrandizing, but it changes the relationship with the teachers, but it, it may not be exactly what you think. So listen to this, 412. Look at 412. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. Those false teachers, they're making much of you. They're, all they're doing is affirming you, but it's for no good purpose. So my question 
as you read those verses, how does the message of the gospel change our relationships with our teachers? You to them and them to you. Yeah? Yeah, there's an accountability both ways. Yeah. What else? What, what do you see in, this, in those passages? What's happening? Yeah, be careful if all anyone's ever doing is making much of you. Because he says the people who are doing that are doing it for no good purpose. What else? There's some, I mean, it's, it's the biggest part of those verses I just read. What do we see happening? A lot of blank. There, there could be mistrust. And it but it seems that way only because he's a, he's a little miffed. So if he wasn't miffed and you were hearing the content, what, what would it be? What have they done for him? Uh-huh. Okay, that's what they've done now. Now that he's back, they've done some bad things. What did they do when he shared the gospel with them? Received him as an angel of God. What did you say? They put him up on a pedestal a little bit. Now, that's not saying, as a teacher, I want you all to know that you should put your teacher on a pedestal. What we're seeing here is, so a little background. Some scholars suspect that Paul had an issue with his eyes. He mentions an illness. He mentions a trial. He says, you would have given me your eyes. And then at the end of the letter, he says, look at what, what big letters I'm writing you. So some people think he had an issue with his eyes. That's why he was writing big. That's why they would have gouged out his eyes. Whether he did or not, the Galatians had clearly been very kind to him. The message caused him to care deeply for them and them to care deeply for him. That's the way it should be with teachers and church members. The teacher should care deeply about the church because of the message, and the church should care deeply about the teacher because of the message. How different this was from the false teachers. In 6.12, it says, uh, I'm getting close on time. It says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The false teachers were trying to be regarded highly by the other Galatians, at, these, at the church Galatians' expense, at the Christians' expense. They wanted to be regarded highly at the expense of those who were saying, I don't think circumcision is a thing. They're saying, no, 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 it is. And if you get circumcised, essentially people are going to look at us and we're going to have a good showing in the flesh in multiple ways. It's kind of a play on words. Teaching truth, what we get from that, teaching truth is always loving. Suppressing truth is always evil, unloving, and even abusive. These unfaithful teachers, these false teachers, were ultimately being abusive to the flock by what they were doing to them. So it changes our relationship with our teachers. It changes our relationship with God. Paul's eager to make it clear that no amount of law-keeping or right living can justify sinners before God. Legalism is what is opposed to walking in the Spirit. Devers has a note. He says, uh, it causes us, legalism causes us to think that we're pretty good. So I say legalism, that's law-keeping. Y'all see what I'm saying? 
Like someone's being real legalistic about something. It's like, oh gosh, you know, to the letter of the law with this guy. Legalism. He says legalism causes us to think we're pretty good or we're good enough when really our least sins condemn us before a perfectly holy God. Legalism and the sinful nature behind it enables us to pursue all sorts of sin while maintaining a sense of just being good enough. I'm a Christian, so I'm good enough. But then to use that to pursue sin is completely backwards from the, the, tr- the truth of the message. And then the last thing is that it changes our relationships with each other. Um, 9 through uh, Galatians 6, I'll just read the 10 verses. It'll take one minute. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself. And then uh, his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He's like, if you're going after the law, you're going to sow to it and you're going to reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And listen to these two verses. These are the two verses that guide any benevolence ministry that this church does. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So no relationship is left untouched by the message of the gospel. At every opportunity, we're to do good to others, we're to bear others' burdens, we're to help one another, especially those who are of the household of faith. The reason that the church is such a light on a hill and such a shiny, bright, aromatic thing is because the gospel creates relationships that are healthy and people look at a group of people and they realize that's very different from what we see over here in the world where there's gossip and slander and hatred and murder. It's not that we're better and it's not that we figured our stuff out because we got gospel and they haven't figured it out. It's that the gospel changes you to where there is a care for one another in the church that the world should look at and say, that's different. That's not what I'm used to. But then there's other communities where it's just affirmation, but it's to no good sense. It's to no good purpose. And so that is the message of Galatians. That is the overview of it. And it's time to dismiss. So let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the book of Galatians. We thank you for this letter that Paul wrote. We thank you for the ministry that he made to, to this church in this place. And, I, and I'm thankful that so many years later, we can sit and glean such wisdom and insight in how to move with others um, and how the gospel is supposed to affect us, the, our relationships with our teachers, uh, the accountability that should exist as a responsibility of, of even the most common Christians. Um, Lord, the, the, uh, the relationships that... Uh, we have uh, with you, the relationship we have with you and then the relationships we have, we have with each other, Lord. I, I pray that the gospel would not be something that we just needed when we got saved, but that we would see through, through studies like this and through script, time in the scripture like this that we need th- Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel every point of every day. And Lord, I pray that you would cause hesitancy in us and cause us to pause and repent in any of those moments where we're trying to earn our righteousness or earn a good standing 
or trying to make ourselves feel better by acting a certain way and not relying on Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now go get your kiddos.